This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about Black American history, which is to say that we're talking about American history because it's impossible to tell this country's story without talking about the experience of Black Americans, those who were enslaved here and those who have lived in the shadow of that horrific history, creating a unique American culture while fighting for the recognition of their civil and human rights. This isn't to say that Black people have been entirely absent from the accepted version of American history, The Underground Railroad, Jim Crow laws, the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. These are all things I learned in high school. But there is much, much more to the story than that. And we're in a moment where that history is finally being told. And a part of telling that history is to change the way that we view history. And this is why I find today's conversation so interesting. Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine are two of the leading lights in this effort. Together, they've curated a collective history of the African-American experience called 400 Souls. The two editors of this collection sat down with journalist Soledad O'Brien to discuss their work, and their answers are enlightening, but so are her questions. She's not just interested in the what here. She wants to know how this history was compiled. And the answers are revealing and, of course, complicating, because history is complicated. This conversation and all other conversations on the keynote track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by BECU, which would like to share the following message. BECU believes every forward thinker deserves added momentum, so for over 85 years they have offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. BECU is a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. Learn more at BECU.org, federally insured by NCUA. I hope you enjoy the talk. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. It is so nice to talk to both of you. Let's jump right in. 90, 90 writers. That sounds utterly unmanageable and sort of overwhelming. Um, Why don't you start for me, Ibram, with a look at how you chose them, and then maybe you can jump in as well, Keisha, with the criteria, what you were hoping to create by these disparate voices. I I think we, we first divided 400 years um, into five-year increments. And then when we started looking at these five-year periods, we started thinking about, you know, what are the, what are the defining or critical uh, things, events, people, uh, places that happened during this five-year period? And and so there were certain, you know, things that, that jumped out at us. You know, obviously the the first chapter, uh, which was written by Nicole Hannah-Jones, the arrival, this this, this, this uh, inaugural ship in 1619, or the last chapter, 
which was written by Alicia Garza, of course, Black Lives Matter. And so what we, we did is we, we tried to figure out, okay, who are the writers who have been writing on these topics? Who, who are the writers uh, who have been already guiding the nation to understand this, this period or this person uh, or this place in American history? And we reached out to them. <laughs> and they said, yes. Um, Akisha, I'm curious how you thought about balancing uh, the voices, because there are so many talented writers, and I'm sure there were so many people who'd be thrilled to be part of a project like this because it's so unusual and so rare. What were your strategies going in and how to manage so much material? Yes, well, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to capture the spirit of community. Uh, and of course, you know, it's in our title, it's a community history of African America, and, and that meant trying to pull as many uh, diverse voices and perspectives as possible. Uh, I think if we had pulled together 90 historical, I'm sorry, 90 uh, his, um, professional historians, we probably would have ended up with essays that were similar. Certainly people would have employed similar methods, might have uh, engaged topics in, in similar ways. And the beauty of bringing together people from diverse backgrounds meant that uh, readers have a, a truly uh, you know, remarkable experience because they're able to grapple with the history, not solely through the lens of professional historians, but through uh, journalists, uh, you know, through creative writers and uh, economists and political scientists and philosophers. So, so part of it was, was trying to make it a fun experience, I think, uh, for the readers. And so we actually kept track. We kept track of, you know, of how many historians we had invited. We kept track of how many creative writers, journalists, because we wanted to have that balance big giant spreadsheet of who's contributing to a remarkable um, compilation of, of a history that hadn't been gathered. Early in the book, uh, in reference to the Mayflower story of America's first arrivals, there's a quote from W.B. Du Bois, and he says, it is propaganda like this that has led men in the past to insist that history is, quote, lies agreed upon. Um, Tell me some of those lies. Uh, maybe, Ibram, you can start us off. What are the lies that people have agreed upon um, that I think not just the historians or the people who, who talk about history, but are also, I think, taught us in school as children? Wow, where do we even begin? Um, I think one lie that we certainly wanted to debunk through 400 Souls is this idea that Black people are a monolith. And, and so, you know, there, there's so much diversity within Black America, among Black people uh, that, and we wanted to sort of demonstrate that through these, through these 90 writers. You know, another lie is that there's something uh, wrong or inferior of, about Black people. And, and every single writer in many ways grappled with that and pushed back against that and actually, you know, told the truth about the, the, the sheer humanity of Black people. There is, yeah, um... oh, go ahead. Excuse me, Keisha, forgive oh, me. Sure, sure. I, you know, I was gonna just throwing a, a couple of other lies. I'll just focus on one in particular, and that is the lie concerning slavery. Uh, we, you know, there's a general understanding, I think today, certainly that slavery uh, as an institution was terrible, but it's interesting if you go back to uh, history textbooks, uh, you know, the way that people have written about slavery 
has not actually uh, captured how terrible uh, it, it was as an institution. And, and there are always these narratives that try to suggest that, well, it was probably not so bad. And there were some friendly slaveholders. You know, some people were really nice to enslaved people. Um, and that that is certainly something that I think 400 Souls uh, really shatters because it helps us to see that this is not an institution we could talk about lightly. Uh, you know, we can't, uh, you know, forget the fact that people were treated as property. Ibram, there was a decision made to have, I guess you'd call them lyrical interludes in between these periods of history. Why did you set it up that way? What, what does that add? Well, first, I mean, when we're thinking about the writing community, especially the writing community today in, in, in Black America, like, like America more broadly, you, you can't really think about the writing community without, without poets. And, and indeed, one of the things that, 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 that Professor Blaine has, has said consistently is when you're reading the sections, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're on a train, you know, headed down a, a sort of a, a path of, um, you know, and, and, and eventually you need a break and you need to reflect um, and, and you need uh, to reflect on the entirety of the section uh, that, that, that you had just read. And, and indeed, those lyrical interludes, those poets, all of whom typically re they read the actual uh, essays in their section and every sort of section ends with, 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 with a poet, um, it, it allows the reader to, to, to actually reflect on, on, on that section, on that period of history. Um, and, 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 it, and it allows that, that reader uh, to, to, to also, you know, uh, understand that history, you know, from a different type of perspective, um, and and I think those poets and those poems were were just an absolute critical tapestry within the book. Professor Blaine um, Molefi Keti Asante says this that out of the the cauldron that was developing under the hegemony of Europeans, several types emerged, including those that would record events, interpret events, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Walk me through these types and tell me their significance in preserving the history of slavery and the arrival of Africans in North America, because they're essential to the storytelling. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, today we often talk about, well, we, we use the, we talk about the role of historians, certainly. Um, and, and oftentimes when we focus on historians in the professional sense, we talk about individuals who have studied, uh, they have become professionalized. You know, many of us have, have you know, obtained PhDs in history, for example. And, uh, and we certainly do play a significant role, I think, in uncovering uh, the, the, you know, the stories of the past in order to illuminate uh, the, the present. Uh, but one of the other, I think, significant contributions uh, is the role of, you know, what we term as the griot, right, as, as the person who might not have necessarily had some sort of professional training. Uh, but, but, but part of what they are able to do is to tell the history through the process of, of, of uh, you know, oral histories, of being able to uh, pass on stories. And, and, and I think that part of uh, the history that, that certainly Professor um, Molefe uh, Asante emphasizes, among others, uh, is crucial to, to helping us think about how history uh, is preserved and remembered. Uh, and we tried, I think, in 400 Souls uh, to pull on all of these 
um, strands and, and, and all of these contributions beyond just the, the formal training, but, but also think carefully about oral histories of, for one, you know, as one quick example. Hmm. Yeah, an important example. Um, there's an author who talks about whiteness as a ledge you can only fall from. What was meant, he, she's in this uh, talking about a white man who's been beaten for having sex with a black woman, not because he had defiled her or abused her, but because he had tainted his whiteness. What, what, explain what the ledge means and, and talk about that ledge, if you will, um, Ibram. Uh, what, what, where did that come from? What moment in time was protecting racial purity, not falling off that ledge at any cost um, a focus and essential. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, Ijeoma's just incredible piece. And, and indeed, I mean, I think one way we can understand it is, is it's, there's just this longstanding notion of, of, of whiteness as pure and, and indeed whiteness, like anything that's apparently pure, uh, can be made unpure. And, and the way it be made, it's unpure in, in a sort of, biological sense is, is through that one drop. So this is the sort of idea of if you have a, a drop of, 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 of the blood of people who are not of European descent, uh, then you suddenly are, are, are not sort of white uh, anymore. And, and I think this is, you know, Ijeoma who is writing on, on a very critical sort of case uh, that, that happened in, in the 1630s. Uh, and, and she's really comparing her personal experience as, as a biracial uh, woman who is read and projected and, and treated as black um, uh, and has been her whole life, uh, despite her you know, mother being white. Um, and, and indeed, as, as somebody who is, who certainly, um, is certainly not purely white, um, you know, and I think it was just an incredible you know, piece. And I've heard such incredible feedback, you know, from that piece in particular. And I, I'm speaking, I, I want to speak more about it, but I don't want to like give it away because I think it's, it's one, of the, one of those early jewels in the book. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing piece. And for me, as someone who's mixed race, I read it as well. And just, you know, this idea that um, she didn't want to let whiteness claim her, I think was the phrase that she used was fascinating. Is that a, is that a, modern phenomenon? Is that, you know, is this, has that shifted how people think about that over time? Is that something that we just think about today? Um, how, how, what do you think, Professor Blaine? I don't think that much has changed. Um, you know, it, it's, it's actually somewhat uh, ironic that uh, Ijeoma is writing about the 1600s, but much of what she outlines can be understood in the modern context. I think we, you know, there's still a, you know, for, well, I think we, we, we still refer to, to it as a, a one drop rule, right? There's this perception still that if a person, uh, you know, is mixed race, it, it ultimately, if they have a black parent, they are uh, categorized as black, right? And they are classified as such um, and they are treated uh, as such. And so uh, I think that, you know, even though we, we generally think that we have progressed in our, you know, in our understanding of race over so many years, the irony is that a lot of these ideas remain salient. Hmm. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit, if you will, um, about 
black women's labor. And Professor Blaine, I'll start with you. And then Professor Kendi, I'll have you jump in on that as well. Um, how was the status of black women defined and valued in the mid 1600s? And how did you see that shift and change and grow or, or maybe more relevantly not change and grow uh, as time uh, passed on? Will you start for me, Professor Blaine? Yes, uh, we wanted to really highlight uh, the significance of black women's labor and particularly starting, of course, with the era of slavery. And we asked historian Jennifer Morgan uh, to write an essay that helps us see uh, how much uh, this history uh, is a gendered history and, and meaning that, you know, one of the things she talks about in her essay uh, is the fact that uh, enslaved uh, black women uh, ultimately uh, every uh, so, so any children that they gave birth to, um, by default, uh, you know, became uh, born into an institution of slavery, and so uh, it was about being able to to trace one's uh, classification uh, as an enslaved person right through the lineage of the mother, uh, and so that is how crucial, uh, you know, we we can think about uh, slavery, particularly through the experiences of Black women. Uh, and, and then, of course, something that she talks about, but also Brenda Stevenson talks about black women's labor and 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 about the fact that when uh, slaveholders, you know, and traders were making decisions about, uh, you know, uh, enslaved people, uh, there was a, a high value placed on black women because the idea was that they would be able to work. Uh, they would be able uh, uh, to work uh, at, you know, for themselves, but also be able to reproduce. And so the notion is that uh, even in, in trading, uh, that, that women would be of high value for, you know, for their future prospects and, uh, you know, to, to further expand laborers on, on the plantation. Uh, and so the, the theme of, of black women's labor is central to understanding the development of slavery uh, in the United States. And those two examples, those two essays in particular, I think, help uh, us see how all of this comes together. It lingers for generations, uh, doesn't it? Professor Kendi. It does. And and indeed, I mean, I think if, if we could sort of boil it down, you know, at a basic level, it was it was conceived of this idea that to to, to be a man is to be a a worker, to, to be a woman at that time, just as um, many think today is to be a mother and a and a wife. Um, but to be a black woman then was also to be a worker. And so what happened is there was this uh, sort of mix of sexist and racist ideas that that it, in a way made black women uh, not only uh, sort of uh, whether you wanna conceive of them as quote men or not women. Um, and they were treated sort of and demeaned um, you know, as such, uh, specifically as 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 it related to, to to white women, and you see that still today. You you still see, for instance, one of the oldest tropes as as black feminist uh, historians have have written about is this idea of the sort of masculine strong black woman who's pretty much like a man, and it sort of goes all the way back to this period that 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 Jennifer Morgan and, and Brenda Stephen were writing about. Hmm. One of the Holmes is by Jericho Brown, and he says this, we'd like a list of what we lost. And one has to imagine that would be a pretty long list. So um, Professor Blaine, 
What's on that list? Money, uh, wealth. Uh, one of the things that you know I often reflect on, uh, which is mind-boggling uh, to me, is the fact that uh, you know before the Civil War, the estimated value of enslaved uh, people in the United States was somewhere between three uh, and three point five billion dollars. And you think about that, and and then of course. Fast forward to the present when you grapple with the realities of the racial wealth gap and you think about what it means for the same group of people who built the United States, actually built the United States from the ground up um, and sacrificed so much for decades, ends up being the same group of individuals at the bottom of the economic ladder. And so what have we lost? Lots of money uh, and wealth for not only ourselves, but for our children and our children's children. And we know how much wealth matters in this country. Hmm. What would you put on that list um, after wealth, which I do think is right at the top? I mean, life itself. And, and hmm. I mean, even when we think of white privilege, there, there may be no greater white privilege than life itself. Um, whether you're talking about the gap right now in life expectancy, uh, whether you're talking about the number of, of, of Black people uh, who are killed by the police, or even during the, the sort of era of, of, of enslavement, which spanned the majority of 400 years, which, which, which spanned the, the majority of, um, of 400 souls, you know, the, the number of, of Black people uh, who lost their lives resisting uh, pushing for the most basic human desire, which was freedom, um, or the, the the number of people uh, who lost their lives be, be, because um, uh, they were black. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, you know, between livelihood and life itself. I mean, I don't know of any two two greater things we've lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go to toward the end and talk about Alicia Garza's, uh, what, what she wrote. She presents protests over the killings of black people and, and America's structural inequalities as a, a black renaissance in a way. Can you explain that to me? And Professor Blaine, why don't you start for me? Absolutely. You know, I, I would of course emphasize uh, the fact, uh, the significance of having Alicia Garza write this piece uh, to, to talk about Black Lives Matter. I think uh, there is no other movement, quite frankly, uh, certainly in our recent history, um, that has truly transformed the American political landscape. And I would even say it has transformed uh, global politics too. We saw that particularly in, over the last 12 months or so with the uprisings in the spring and in the summer. Uh, and, and to think about this as a Renaissance moment I think is, is important uh, to signify just the vibrancy, um, just the way that people have come together, uh, certainly people of African descent, but, but actually I think as we saw in the last couple months, what is so powerful too about, about Black Lives Matter as a movement is it's how it has brought people together from all uh, walks of life, from all backgrounds uh, who are committed uh, to social justice. And so this is truly, a moment of change. I, you know, I know, uh, of course, as, as historians, we, we we know that change 
can often be a slow process and we know that uh, you know things won't happen overnight but I do think this is a moment uh, that we are beginning uh, to turn the corner, so to speak. And, and, and of course, Black Lives Matter uh, has played such a fundamental role uh, in getting us to, to at least talk about anti-Black racism, to talk about police violence, and, and, and hopefully to continue making steps forward for change. Do you, this is a little bit like asking people if they have a favorite child. So I recognize that going into this question, but do you have a, an essay that, that is your personal favorite? Is that a secret you'll take to your graves when you've asked 90 writers to contribute? What, what, what was the one that struck you uh, in a certain way? Um, why don't you start for me, Professor Blaine, and then we'll go to uh, Professor Kennedy. Uh, well, I love all of the essays uh, and poems, <laughs> uh, but, but I have to say uh, that the one that probably moved me uh, the most, and I think moved me to tears the first time uh, that I read it, was K.S.A. A Layman's essay on cotton. Um, and there's just something so beautiful about that essay and the way that it connects, uh, certainly to the history, uh, but 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 Kayase was able to connect to his own personal story and to talk about growing up in Mississippi and being in his grandmother's house and the feeling of cotton and what it meant for him, uh, you know, as a child and, and to connect that to the significant role of cotton uh, in, um, you know, in black life and culture, particularly in the South. And that was just an essay that uh, since I read it the first time stayed with me and I just you know, I think all the essays are remarkable. I'll re reiterate that, but that particular essay is so moving to me. How about you, Professor Kendi? So I have so many favorites and I feel like I, I, I try to express a different one, uh, you know, each time. I, I think the, 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 the piece that, that I'm thinking about now is I think a piece we already talked a little bit about, and that's Nicole Hannah Jones' opening piece, and 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 I think the reason why that 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 piece really for me was was so powerful is, I mean the 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 contrasting you know of of the white lion. The white lion is the name of the ship that that carried uh, the twenty or or odd. Uh, enslaved Africans that arrived in August of 1619, and and contrasting that ship with the Mayflower that that arrived in 1620, and and how she was able to articulate, you know, very clearly that we're we're constantly taught about the Mayflower, um, and indeed it's a significant sort of important ship that should be talked about, but why aren't we also talk taught about the white lion and because if indeed as she writes the mayflower is the heralding of american freedom then the white lion is the heralding of, of american slavery we'll be back with more after this message ready to take your travels to the next level alaska airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. 
Hi, everybody who's here for the live interview today. We're going to welcome Abram and Keisha back uh, for a few minutes of audience questions. Thank you guys for uh, this conversation. Here's uh, the first question. One of the most insidious types of bills in states today are those that try to restrict educators from teaching a more comprehensive U.S. history. How can we effectively fight these efforts? I really like this question because I hear it a lot. People listen to what you both talk about and I think are very interested in the history and the point of view of the readings. And then they're sort of, what do we do if they're not a historian, if they don't necessarily have a, a giant platform, if they're not a governor of a state? What kind of advice do you give people? Uh, well, I'll so, just- I mean, start. Oh. <laughs> no, please. Uh, well, I'll just say uh, briefly that um, there are several ways, I think, to, to tackle this. I think certainly if one is a parent and, you know, with school age children, there are ways that um, you can certainly challenge, uh, you know, wh whether it is your local school district, there are ways that you can make demands and, and, and make your voice heard as it pertains to the curriculum as it pertains to the, the kinds of uh, texts that your, uh, you know, that that your child, um, that you want your child to read in the classroom. So, so I think, yes, it's a smaller scale, but 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 certainly, I always encourage people to operate within their spheres of influence. And so, if you're a parent, even just going to a parent teachers, you know, association meeting and and being able to bring up these concerns, that could simply be the spark for change. Certainly, I think there are other people who would agree with you. Uh, and, and, and maybe one person bringing it to the fore will cause others to rally around them. Uh, and, 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 and I think that that's a powerful step. Um, and, and if someone is an educator, then, uh, you know, someone, you know, you may be able to come up with creative ways to bring into the classroom text to supplement, uh, you know, you know, what, whatever standard text you might be using. So I always say, look for ways uh, to you know, assert uh, your voice and, and and your agency, no matter how small, because I think that's important. Uh, you know, if we want to see uh, changes uh, in the curriculum, uh, it's important to to try whatever we can. I have a bunch of questions, so I'm actually going to move on. And and, um, and Ibram, if I may ask you this one: What anti-racist actions do you hope readers are inspired to take as a result of reading Four Hundred Souls? Wow, it's, I, I probably would sort of rephrase it to, there's, you know, is there anything I don't expect us to do? I mean, you know, hopefully this book will really just galvanize uh, people first and foremost to um, do what, what, what Black people have, have always been asserting and, and, and demanding, and that is, you know, treating us uh, like we're imperfect, uh, beautiful humans. Um, but but I think even more than that, for you to uh, sort of continue on in, in studying the history of, of African-Americans, I, I suspect many people who may read this book and maybe the first single volume history of African-Americans that they've ever Read and there's so many other volumes on on African American history that this can be an introduction to and and I just can I know that the more people 
understand African-American history, the more they understand American history, the more they understand themselves and the more they understand how to be anti-racist in this moment. Next question. Can you comment on the use of the word souls in the book as well as the title? Why don't you tackle that one for me, Professor Blaine? Sure. One of the earliest uh, analogies uh, that Ibram used in, in really explaining the book, which I think is so powerful, is, is thinking of this text uh, as a choir uh, and, and particularly uh, through you know the lens of, of the black choir, you know, for those of us who might have gone to black churches and understand the the, the you know the significant role of, of choirs in these spaces and how everyone comes together to play a part to create something beautiful, uh, and and so with that particular analogy, the emphasis is is on how the history sings and and how soulful it is. Uh, and so 400 souls is, is a play on that word of thinking about the soulfulness um, of the history, uh, but also to alluding uh, to uh, two core themes that run through the text, one being spirituality broadly um, and, and the second being religion. Uh, so that's the short answer for why we uh, use 400 souls <laughs> as opposed to 400 years. Uh, next question. This is a great question, and I, I'm asked this a lot, and I often have to uh, punt and send them to adult books because I think there are sometimes more suggestions. Do you have suggestions, the writer asks, for children's books about race and America? I'm going to ask you both to answer this question. Uh, Professor uh, Kendi, will you start for me? Wh where would you send? And I, 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 for some reason, feel like this is a parent who's trying to navigate something that's a little challenging. Where would you send them first? Wow. So if if the child is in the middle grades or in high school, you know, I would send them to to books written by Jacqueline Woodson and Renee Watson, uh, Jason Reynolds, uh, Nick Stone, uh, you know, Angie Thomas, um, Elizabeth Acevedo, um, and Nicole Yoon. I mean, there's so many incredible writers. Uh, you know who who are who are producing you know incredible uh, you know books on on race um, you know for children, and so to give those names again, I think I said Angie Thomas and Nick Stone and Jason Reynolds and Elizabeth Acevedo and Jacqueline uh, you know Woodson, and that's that's just a start. And maybe the question for you then, Professor Blaine, is what should parents be looking for in books as they try to navigate? I think this is a tough thing for a lot of parents right now as their children see a lot of what's unfolding kind of in the world and on television and on social media, and they're trying to navigate the best way to help their kids. What should parents be looking for uh, as they look at some of the reading material for their kids? Mm -hmm. Well, I would encourage people to look for uh, something that I always look for as a parent, uh, and, and that is making sure that you're introducing your child to narratives that center Black agency. Um, and, and what do I mean? Uh, being careful with the kinds of stories that talk about um, everything perhaps being done to Black people. Uh, and, and of course, we're historians, we understand the larger historical forces, we understand um, the, you know, the roles that systems and institutions play. Uh, and I'm not discounting that, but I think it's important to 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 introduce narratives that help children see 
um, that you know, black people as thinkers, black people as theorists, black people as strategists, black people as activists, right? Black people as movers and shapers of their own destinies, of their own histories, and um, and and as you know, culture. Uh, shifters and, and all of that because because unfortunately many of the narratives that we hear you know on the television and other spaces um, do not uh, celebrate uh, black agency and I and I think it's important to do that as 400 souls uh, certainly does next question uh, it's a great question I'd like you both to answer it uh, how have you felt about the backlash by some to the idea of this retelling of history and I sort of put that in quotes because I think in a lot of ways this this is not quite a retelling. It hasn't been told. And the discomfort is not that it's a retelling. It's a first telling uh, that's that's maybe not sitting well with some people. Um, clearly, some of it is a, a political device. But I'd like you both to talk about that in the work that you're doing, um, the, the backlash. Why don't you start for me, Professor Kendi? Well, I, I, I think... I, I do think it's important for us to recognize that there are indeed elected officials today who are not doing anything for their for their constituents. They're not uh, in, in pre improving their, their standard of living. Uh, they're not ensuring uh, that they're protected from COVID. They're not doing anything, but they want to appear as if they're doing something. So they've decided, of course, uh, to go after those of us who are writing an accurate sort of history, you know, of America, or even uh, identifying uh, racism when we see racial inequity and injustice, and and they have a continuously, of course, uh, putting out uh, ideas um, about critical race theory, about the 1619 Project, about you know, 400 Souls, about uh, anti-racism, about uh, all these efforts uh, to that are really seeped in uh, a yearning for justice and truth and, and equity. And, and to me, it's unfortunate because you have many people who don't know that they're, that they're being manipulated into believing uh, that their elected officials are actually doing something, <laughs> uh, you know, when they're, when they're not. But I, what I will say very quickly you know, is is that to me, it, I there's been so many Americans who've been taught so many lies. We, you know, about this nation's past that the lie that you know what, yes, things were bad, but they were made okay by the Civil War, or they became bad again, but they everything became good when we passed civil rights legislation in, in the '60s, or when a black man assumed. The presidency, and so those people of color are just crying for no reason, um, and they're, they're actually the true problem. Those are all lies, and they, we've consistently proven them to not be true. Mm -hmm. And I'll just briefly say that the backlash uh, is to be expected. You know, I, I always tell people that you're not really doing, uh, you know, meaningful anti-racist work uh, if you're not receiving backlash, if you're not receiving resistance. Uh, that's a sign that you're not actually challenging the status quo. Uh, history has taught us that every time there is progress, every time there is a step forward, uh, there will be backlash. We saw it after the passage of the Brown decision in 1954. We saw it after 
uh, the Civil Rights Act. We saw it after the Voting Rights Act, and the list goes on. And so I'm, I'm not too concerned about the backlash. It's actually expected, and, and for me, uh, a sign that uh, we're doing something of consequence. And so we just have to keep pushing forward. Uh, next question. How can we ensure a more equitable future, specifically for Black women? Who wants to tackle that one? I'm volunteering Professor Blaine to start us off. Yes. Wow. Where to begin? Um, you know, as you asked that question, the first thought that came to my mind is actually, uh, you know, just concerning the high rate of mortality, you know, as it pertains to, um, you know, black women giving birth. You know, I sometimes I, I, I just remain stunned at the statistics and simply cannot understand how uh, in this nation, uh, despite all of the progress that we'd like to talk about, so many black women are, are you know, to this day losing their lives in the process of, of, of uh, giving birth. And, and, and that, of course, speaks to larger inequities in the healthcare system, as we have seen uh, when it comes to COVID-19. So uh, as we think about how to make life better, uh, we certainly have to talk about uh, greater access to quality health care. Uh, and, and thankfully, I think we're, we're, we're already seeing some steps with the new administration uh, toward coming up with ways uh, to make sure that, that black women have the help that they need, uh, the, you know, the, the support that they need uh, when, when they are uh, pregnant. And, and you know, even those who are thinking about becoming pregnant and planning uh, for starting a family, that they know that they have access to the resources uh, to be able to, you know, to, to have a safe experience. So, so that's one thing that comes to mind, but so many challenges, as, as you all know. Final question goes to you, Professor Kendi, which would be, so when you think about all those challenges, are you optimistic? I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily optimistic or pessimistic, but I would say that I'm hopeful and some people consider hopefulness to be a form of optimism. And I'd say I'm hopeful just at a philosophical level. I believe you, you have to believe change is possible in order to, to, to bring it about. And indeed, I think, you know, going back to 400 Souls, we, we showed so many, told so many stories of ordinary people. We, we no one has, you know, um, we're, we're not necessarily known and incredible, you know, prominent people. Uh, and, and, and one through line is these people believed that one day chattel slavery would be no more. These these people believe that, that one day Jim Crow, um, you know, would fly away. These, these people believe that that we could achieve, a you know, a nation uh, that's equitable and, and, and just. And that's why they kept fighting on. And, 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 and I think, you know, that's really how, in a way, the, the book ends with, with Professor Blaine's, you know, beautiful piece that that indeed we we have to sort of move and act uh, and live and fight in that tradition. It is a beautiful way to end this great conversation. Thank you to our audience for these fantastic questions. And thank you, of course, to the two of you uh, for this discussion. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Ibram, Keisha, and Soledad for the conversation. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. 
This episode of Crosscut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com support. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation. Thank you.